can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor Davis Hanson is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Busky Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. I'm Jack Fowler. I'm the host. I get to ask Victor the questions, the kind of questions I think you'd want Victor to to uh, answer. I'm just as curious as you are, dear listeners. So a couple of things we're going to talk about today. Hey, John Bolton. John Bolton, the former ambassador to the U.N., former national security advisor to Donald Trump, former memoirist of his time in the White House that really went after Donald Trump. Well, John Bolton is sort of throwing his hat in the ring for 2024. And we're going to get Victor's thoughts on that and other topics when we come back right after these important messages. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, yeah, you know, I know John. You know John. I like John. I don't know if you can speak about whether you like John and I served on a board with him. I don't know him as well as you do, but I have met him. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, 
came on a few National Review cruises. Yes. I used to run the page. Awfully nice. And Mrs. Mrs. Bolton, very nice. Yes. John has always, I think, sort of seen the president of the United States looking back in the mirror, always. Um, on the right, I think particularly within the last few years, his very aggressive stand against uh, our uh, Obama's policy and now maybe uh, Biden's policy related to Iran and his support of Israel, all very, very important and cheer cheerworthy. But, uh, you know, he seems to have uh, popped a bubble with his many cons- of his conservative supporters. Yeah, he did work for President Trump uh, begrudgingly, reluctantly, maybe even angrily. While he was there, seemingly, you know, taking notes every night, so he was going to write the write a book as soon as he got out the door. And when he when he got out the door, he did write a book, and and its its objective was to kneecap Donald Trump. Well, the Daily Mail has a piece that he uh, John uh, had an interview with British uh, media where he essentially said he was going to run in twenty twenty four, and essentially to in one part to block Donald Trump, but even Donald Trump didn't get in the race. He was going to run anyway. And I think John Bolton thinks he would be, a, a, you know, a good president of the United States. So, Victor, uh, I know you have some thoughts about this. Would you like to share them? Well, I think with all due respect to John Bolton, I, I think he understands he's not going to get the nomination. So we don't nominate X. Uh, national security advisors that have never been elected anything unless they have spectacular success in a particular field or they're celebrities like Trump. So that's not going to happen, number one. Number two, I don't think you're going to get 16 or 17 people in this race. You're probably going to get six or seven, maybe Christy Nome, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, DeSantis, I don't think Tom caught Nikki Haley and maybe John Bolton and a couple of others. And it's going to be, you never know because of the Scott Walker phenomenon where a very good candidate kind of that was leading and among the pundits in the polls just sort of imploded on the second debate stage. So we never, we don't know what's going to happen, but for right now there's going to be, designated candidates. If Chris Christie, to take one example, decides to run, it's been a long time since he's been governor. He has some problems. He has a checkered relationship with Trump. It'll be to take Trump out. That's what I'm trying to say. So there will be designated people who will try to warn the country about the Trump resurgence, and that's what he is doing. So I think he will try to run, and then he will make the case for something he believes sincerely in, and that is a proactive, uh, I guess, neoconservative foreign policy to get engaged abroad in a preemptive fashion uh, against suspicious, you know, enemies, etc. Okay. But he will try to use his expertise about Donald Trump from an insider's point of view to warn about Donald Trump. And then I think if he can do damage to Donald Trump, get into some debates one-on-one, then and Donald Trump should lose, then historically that role as the attack dog is rewarded in some fashion. And I think he's always wanted to be Secretary of State. I want to put an asterisk. What you know, I, I have nothing against John Bolton. I I think he's a very bright guy, and he's you know he's written a lot and 
the Bradley Foundation, of which I'm on board. We, we've given them before my tenure um, a Bradley Prize. But um, I don't know how to say this, Jack, but at some point, it seems to me that people who were the beneficiaries of Trump largesse or goodwill or magnanimity have some modicum of restraint in their subsequent behavior. Now, what I mean by that is John Bolton was nominated as UN ambassador under Donald, uh, George W. Bush, and the left hated him. They despised him. They hated the very ground he walked on. And he was an interim, remember that recess appointment for one year. They would never, they would never confirm him. And he was never going to get back into what he wanted to be, a national security advisor or secretary of state. Okay. So Donald Trump came in and he, like the Republican establishment, opposed him vehemently. And we had a national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. And I think that you could make the argument that H.R. McMaster was different than the other foreign policy. The other, there were four generals that he appointed. Remember, there was Flynn. Right. And Kelly and McMaster and Mattis. And Kelly, uh, Flynn's a separate situation because he was a transitional figure and he was framed and treated terribly. But I think you could make the argument that the other generals thought that they had to convince Donald Trump to their way of thinking. Okay. Include, and, not, not including McMaster or not? No, include, no. Not McMaster. Okay. No. So what I'm saying is their view was that Donald Trump was probably dangerous. They were willing to serve. If you were Mattis, you were going to try to tell him these are the existing protocols that right. have been long tried and time tested. And my job is to win you over to you don't say a word about NATO. Da, da, mm-hmm. da, da, da. Right. And Kelly's was I'm going to bring order and sobriety and judiciousness into the management of the Oval Office. Okay. I think McMaster was a little different. His view was, I'm here to serve. I understand your MAGA foreign policy. No better friend, no worse enemy. Don't tread on me. Jacksonian punitive foreign policy. So you do not want to go in and nation bill. Okay. My job is to take your foreign policy and translate it into the existing framework of how to implement it. So this right. is NATO. This is the alliance that we have with Japan. This is your MAGA agenda. I will implement it in a way that's that reflects your values, but is also workable. Now, of course, at certain times, he thought that Trump's ideas were not workable, but I don't think he was, what I'm trying to say, I don't think he was insubordinate. He did right. not try to sabotage them, or he not, did not try to speak to the media and trash him. John even Bolton, after even after he was he left his service he really didn't right um, he's I, I mean i'm i'm if anybody wants to go on to uh, goodfellows it's a podcast the hoover institution uh errors you can see that i had two interactions with it were quite vocal right heated he i guess is the euphemism so i'm not invested in just you know right uh, saying only nice things about H.R. McMaster. But in this case, I, I am going to say a lot of nice things because I think he was dutiful and he was trying to translate Trumpism 
into what he knew of the military's way of doing business mm-hmm. rather than just say, you know what, this guy's nuts. We got to stop him. He's dangerous. Rosa Brooks type, you know, write an article in foreign policy. You can get the 25th Amendment. You can impeach him. We can have a coup, that kind of stuff. You know, our Mark, our Mark Milley, I got to call it my Chinese counterpart and warn him that I diagnosed my president's crazy, that kind of stuff. So he didn't do that. And the other generals and admirals, to be quite frank, were very, entire, were very critical in a very candid way. He wasn't. Okay. So he was doing, but John Bolton really wanted that job. So John Bolton had been very critical of McMaster and he had used all of his acumen and savvy. And he's quite adept at the Washington, you know, fish tank. He knows how to swim in it. And he, his allies wanted McMaster out, and they wanted him out in the idea that he was a bureaucrat, he was a PowerPoint guy, and you needed a strong Jacksonian. But what happened was when they maneuvered McMaster out, and, you know, they got a guy who was not a MAGA person, his idea of Jacksonian toughness was, you know, a lot different than Trump's was. Trump, his attitude was, we're not going to get in any wars or overseas commitments because they've been disastrous and we don't know what the hell we're doing and we're not going to go into another Afghanistan. We're not going to get into shooting war with North Korea. We may, all of that stuff. And Bolton's was, you know, we're going to use the full extent of American power and resources to spread freedom and our way of life and our values all over the world, regardless of the cost. And that was a direct confrontation. So what I'm getting at is you would think, and I know that he fired him, but you would think that John Bolton might think like this. Okay, I disagreed with Trump, but I helped maneuver McMaster out. And Trump appointed me, and this was the only chance that I'd ever have to be either a you know a, a deputy or a full national security advisor. Probably the second most powerful person in foreign policy, along with the Secretary of State. So he got that, and he was never going to get it from George W. Bush, whom he was very close to. He was never going to be confirmed as Secretary of State. That was the only job he's ever going to have because he didn't have to be confirmed by the Senate. And they were never going to confirm him. They couldn't stand him, the left. And so what I'm getting at, at some point, and he was, what, 70 years old when this happened? You would think that he would, you know, so he had differences. And Trump. you would think that for all of his animus and anger at Trump, he would have a moment of reflection. I think I would. And I'd say, well, you know, Victor, you were... You're not going to get what you wanted, and you were in the eddies and backwaters and tide pools of Washington. And this guy puts you right on the crest of the wave, what you've always wanted. And for that, those months, you were the guy. And that was only due to Donald J. Trump. So when this, you know, phone call impeachment, well, that was just completely bogus, you know. It really was. You you would try to impeach a president because of Mr. Vindman calls up the quote unquote Caramella or whatever his name was, whistleblower, and says that Donald Trump used personal things. And then you would have to, to believe the impeachment, you would have to believe that A, the Biden family wasn't corrupt, B, 
Biden hadn't in the past intervened to fire people that were investigating his son or that the Biden family wasn't getting rich or that Donald Trump didn't sell offensive weapons like Obama did. But you were left with the reality that he ended up selling offensive weapons that the Obama administration would not. And he delayed them because he had legitimate concerns in a crude fashion, albeit, about the Biden family. Okay, so why then would John Bolton, with a wink and a nod, write his? Remember his writing his memoirs, and whether it was he was the government was auditing him to see if he was disclosing confidential information. The left all right. of a sudden was bragging on him. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, John Bolton's going to be the magic bullet. That so the Mueller failed, and then all of a sudden the impeachment didn't get the conviction, but this this book was going to do it, and the book was very very harsh. That was the intention of the book too. I it was, think it sold. It sold. It made him a lot of money, and yeah. it was it was very harsh. But these are not my sentiments alone. I must have had twenty calls from people who are of the donor class, and they said things like, I can't support this anymore because he, it's disloyal. He doesn't show any gratitude. It's not magnanimous. Why He could have easily said, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to write my memoirs like Bill Barr did uh, after the 10 right. years. It'll come out after Trump is, you know. Yeah, I would pray, put it this way. I, I'm going to write these memoirs so Joe Biden will become president of the United States. That has that cannot have appeal. By the way, I think that's that is a valid way of yeah, looking at true. it. And yeah. and why why would that have any appeal to a Republican base? Well, yeah. like everybody said, what is wrong with Bolton? Does he not like the border? Does he not like the deregulation? Does he not like the leasing of new natural gas and oil leases? Does he not like energy self-sufficiency? Does he not like, you know, taking out ISIS and getting rid of it in Syria? Does he not like standing down North Korea? Does he not like jawboning NATO to spend an extra $100 million? Doesn't like rebuilding that rickety fence 500 miles plus with a new wall? What, what does he not like? And that's that was the problem. And so, and especially when Don, uh, the reason John Bolton had come to prominence more so than a gifted diplomat, an experienced diplomat, which he was, was that he understood the mind of the left and he was combative and unapologetic. So he knew what the left does. And yet he allowed himself to be used as a tool of the left to weaken a president that they had gone after with a phony Russian collusion, which was a complete joke, and a first impeachment, which which a complete joke, and the Hunter laptop disinformation, which was a complete joke. And he knew all that. He knew better than anybody what they were doing. And yet he allowed himself, uh, quote unquote, on principle, because he said Trump was a danger to the Constitution, to be used like that. From what he used in his way of thinking, he was using the left to get rid of right. Trump, perhaps. Yeah, but for, you know, for what? For what? What fills that vacuum? Uh, what did he give us? What did he give us? So I would like to say to John Bolton: So you won. 
you want you wrote a memoir and maybe you can take some modicum of credit that you convinced the electorate that Donald Trump was a danger, an existential danger to the republic. Now, I would ask two questions of you. Uh, was it worth it in the sense that is the border five million entries good? And you like the idea that gasoline reached historic highs in California and we drained the strategic petroleum reserve. Do you like the woke movement and the crime wave that we're suffering? Do you like that we're going to be headed into a major recession any month now? Do you like what happened in Afghanistan? Is that what you wanted? Because that's what you got with Biden. And then, you know, that's and then my second question would be, so your argument was Don, that Donald Trump was a existential threat to constitutionalism. Okay. You knew that Barack, did he do what Barack Obama did? Did he a surveil the Associated Press reporters? Did he go after James Rosen at Fox News and monitor his email data? No. Did he go over and have a hot mic with the president of Russia and said, basically, tell Vladimir that if I dismantle uh, missile defense, then and he gives me space during my election, then we'll have a good deal. And, and, you know, we got rid of the Czech and Polish project. We have no missile defense in Eastern Europe, thanks to Obama. And Putin did not invade in 2012 and 13. He went into 2014, as promised, I guess. Was that a good thing to do? Did Trump do any of that? Or better yet, when we were looking at the Michael Schellenberg or Matt Taibbi or Elon Musk probe, did under Donald Trump's watch, were these FBI at his direction or were they against Trump? The the FBI I'm talking about that was contracting out to to Twitter to violate the First Amendment rights of people as a, as a contractor and the Steele dossier. And did Donald Trump's people forge a, a FISA document? And did Donald Trump's people lie under oath like Andrew McCabe? And the answer is, I can't see how he abused the system, partly because he was under scrutiny to an unprecedented degree. He couldn't sneeze because there were thousands of reporters who wanted to get a Pulitzer Prize by getting Trump. But whatever the reason was, if you compare his tenure from what we're learning about the Obama years, but more importantly, about what the rogue administration did under Trump, how they tried to subvert him, and anonymous, the guy that was writing, you know, I'm going to I'm inside the deep bowels of the Trump administration. I'm going to subvert everything I feel that I can. And he turned out to be a low-level person in Homeland Security. But my point is that when he looks at all that, so when he announces his 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 uh, election, and he, he puts it in terms of basically stopping Trump because of his excesses or his danger to constitutional freedom, I don't know where the data is. If he really believed that, he would be out right now campaigning against Joe Biden. And he would be warning the world what the FBI is capable of. And he would be writing op-eds about, we need to make James Comey and Andrew McCabe responsible and culpable. And we have to make sure that nobody ever like them again deceives or leaks or lies as they did or signs off on steel dossier basically cut and paste material that deceived a FISA judge and in one case was doctored 
But no, none of that. So I'm confused about other than, as I said from our initial conversation today, that he, I think he has a role to be the guy that knows the Trump and then that'll be capable and skilled right. enough to embarrass Donald Trump and weaken him. And then his uh, the eventual winner will will reward that that service with fealty and honor and loyalty to John Bolton and John Bolton will get a big appointment. And that, that That's not a, necessarily a dig at John Bolton because they all do that. Right. Everybody in the primary either, you know, it takes out an enemy or drops out at a convenient time, whether it's Kamala Harris getting the VP nomination or Pete Buttigieg being competent or you name it, they get a, they get something. Victor, if we, if we can wrap this up, uh, I'm curious. Uh, one last thing on Bolton. Now, I, I don't want to infer you were involved in any intrigue in foreign policy and the, uh, and the the ways and means going on in the State Department. But I know you know people there, and I'm sure you like Pompeo when he was Secretary of the State. I, I can't say I'm sure, but I assume on occasion you might have spoken to him. I also assume you probably generally have positive view of M- Mike Pompeo. Do I you do. have any th- any thought about the relationship between? Do, do you know anything the relationship between? Pompeo and and John Bolton, while both were serving at the same time, was there any was it was it oil and vinegar there or oil? Well, and I mean, you, you have to put in the context going back to Henry Kissinger that the national security advisor is always at odds with the State Department, and it's it's an even Stephen rivalry because each wants to run foreign policy, and the State Department. Secretary of State has that advantage of thousands of embassies and thousands of embassy workers and thousands of bureaucratic and a huge budget. And the National Security Advisor has the year of the president and he's with him more. And he's not, you know, he doesn't run a big, huge, cumbersome department. And so they're always at each other's throat. But I have, you know, I think the problem was that, uh, again, it was kind of like the uh, Mattis-McMaster tensions, as reported in the press. I'm not saying I know anything privately, but just as reported in the press. And I think it was the same thing where Mike Pompeo, who, you know, he had been in the Army and he had been director of the CIA. He, he you know, he had a distinguished record in the Congress as a representative. I think he saw, and he was probably in the Bolton camp as far as foreign policy, but he saw his role, like McMaster, how to translate Trumpism right. into State Department bureaucracy. So when Trump said, get out of the Iran deal, he said, this is how we're going to do it. When right. Trump said, move the embassy to Jerusalem, tell it, tell Israel they're going to have the Golan Heights, cut off the Palestinians at the United Nations, he said, this is how you do it, Mr. President. And then he said, I want those SOBs in NATO to pay their fair share. And that's how you do it diplomatically. Right. But John Bolton, I think, would be more like the Pentagon people. He would say, that is crazy. I'm not going, I'm going to go over and say, you know what? I have to deal with this Trump guy. In other words, that's what, there was two approaches. 
Right. One was you incorporate the MAGA Trumpism into the existing bureaucracy as your commander in chief. And the other one was I have to preserve the United States while this lunatic is president. And that's why I'm here. Very different ideas. So <laughs> radically. Trump, yeah. And Trump, you know, when he appointed people, he never really was able or was unaware or was not able to ascertain which of those mindsets they were. Were they, I don't really care what you think about me, Mr. Appointee, but your job is to translate MAGAism into, into policy and you have these skill sets. Are you willing to do that? Versus, I can't appoint you because I know you disagree with what I'm trying to do abroad and you will use your knowledge of these bureaucracies to subvert me and how that would translate in their every day is that a Pompeo might go over to a diplomat and say, look, this is the way the United States is looking at this thing. And here's what we're going to do. And I want to hear how you object and what's the problem. And then he would call Trump up and probably say, Mr. President, this is what they want. This is what, and this is how I think we can, we can, outfox them, or this is how I can fulfill your mission, or this is your vision of foreign policy. And I think Bolton was more in the other camp. He would go over and he would lament and say, you know what, I got this president, and that guy is volatile. And even if it was bad cop, good cop. But my point is that it's very different. So I know that Pompeo was in that former category. He was trying to use knowledge of Washington. So was Devin Nunes when he was trying to work with the president on the Russian collusion hoax, he was trying to tell Mr. President, I can, this is the stuff I can do and this is how we can do it and pursue this. But he wasn't trying to undermine it. And, you mean the things he was doing that, that David French wanted him thrown out of Congress for? No, we can't, can't go yeah. down that rabbit hole. Can't go down Yeah. He, <laughs> David French wrote a, an op-ed in the National Review asking for Nunes to resign. Yeah. Remarkable. Resigned because he was pursuing a uh, a fantasy or a conspiratorial idea that the Russians did not interfere in a very not just you know three hundred thousand dollars worth of bought ads, but I'm talking about you know serious intervention, i.e. <laughs> Hillary Clinton hired a foreign national, and then that foreign national was paid through three pay paywalls to disguise her fingerprints. And then lazy SOB that Christopher Steele was, he just hired a bunch of this Dolan guy in Moscow and the guy at the Brookings and just made up a bunch of lies and then passed it off through James Baker at the FBI and Sussman and some other guys to get it out before the election. That's what David French said, uh, was proof that Donald Trump and Putin had a deal, I guess. And that mm -hmm. people who exposed that were like uh, Demi Nunes then uh, worthy of resigning. Right. Well, some people are never worthy of mea culpas on uh, on these kind of outlandish never public. That, isn't That's a good point. Yeah. They never say that. I, I, You know, they just go on to the next Roadrunner, uh, Wiley Coyote incident. They never stop and say, you know what? We were wrong about those alpha bank pings. They never existed. We were wrong uh, about Russian collusion. We were wrong about the laptop. It was authentic. We we see that now. We understand that. 
we understand you can't give $419 million like Mark Zuckerberg did stealthily to warp an election. We understand that. We understand we went in and we sued these state legislatures, just as Molly Ball had outlined, just so we could change into a remote election balloting voting desk. They never say any of that. It's always on to the next one. It's like, you know, it is like that Wiley E. Coyote that each right. time he fails to get Roadrunner, he comes up with a bigger bomb and a bigger chainsaw and a bigger machine gun. And <laughs> yeah. the answer but no, to all of the <laughs> failure is, I, if you're Adam Schiff, the, the mindset, I didn't lie enough. I did not lie enough. I didn't, you know, get mm-hmm. enough compromise and all this crap. So if only if only a big rock fell on their head in the meanwhile so that we had a little a little thrill uh but that doesn't seem to have happened to any of these folks hey victor um we're going to talk next about something that came in today's mail and i'll tell you about it right after these important messages angie's list is now angie the nation's largest home services marketplace And Angie is here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. My son needed a major yard cleanup at his new home. We went straight to the Angie website and found a bunch of local, reliable, and affordable pros to handle the job, and one did pronto. Angie can help you find the best price for your project. Angie lets you request and compare quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Dot com or download the app today. The app and website are free to use. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'd like to remind our listeners to visit VictorHanson.com. Not only visit it, subscribe to it. Okay, costs what? Five bucks to test it out. $50 for the year. But what are you getting for your 50 bucks? You're getting a couple of books worth of exclusive content that Victor writes only for VictorHanson.com. If you love what Victor writes, and I'm pretty sure you do, then you're doing yourself a disservice by not subscribing. So go there. You'll find links, by the way, to Victor's other appearances, other podcasts, uh, radio shows, uh, interviews, links to all his books. So many appearances that Victor makes here and there and everywhere. So that's VictorHanson.com. Check that out. What else? Oh, me, Jack Fowler. I I am the um, I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Civil Society at American Philanthropic, and I write a free 
weekly email newsletter called Civil Thoughts. It gives 12, 13, 14 recommended readings, things worthwhile, things I've come across the previous week. Here's the link. Here's an excerpt. There's nothing transactional about it. Again, it's free. We're not building an email list. I just think it's stuff you like. So why don't you sign up for it? Civilthoughts.com. And what else? You can hear my dog maybe snoring in the background. (laughs) He just ate and he's fed and he's so happy. So, Victor, I'm happy too. Why? I went to my mailbox and what was there? The new issue of the new Criterion. And the lead uh, essay is by a guy named Victor Davis Hanson. It's it's on the cover. It says military history. But the title here is The Uses and Abuses of Military History. And I have to admit, this is you have to subscribe to the new Criterion. Go to their website. Maybe, maybe they offer you a freebie. I'm not sure. I do subscribe. But, Victor, um, I haven't read it yet. But why don't you tell us about what are some of the uses and abuses of military history? And I think you get into current wokeism trends as one of the abuses. Yeah, uh, that essay was part of the new criterion has a writer in residence. And that was for 2022. I think I'm going to do it for 2023, just for a two year tenure. And I was supposed to write six essays. And one was on an obituary for three classicists, Donald Kagan, Leslie Threat, and John Lynch. Another one was the deplorable state of classics and how people are destroying it. Another one was on an essay on the deterioration of Western civilization. I wrote one on Black Lives Matter, which is pretty damning to it. And that was even before the, the disclosures about their financial problems. And mansions. Yeah, I wrote one on neo-Confederate ideology that sanctuary cities, nullifying federal law, one-drop racial exceptions were very Confederate, that the left was becoming like the South that they used that they hate, the old South, not the modern South. And then I wrote one on Petronius' Satyricon, and this was the last one on military history. And my argument was that history was synonymous with military history. Inquiry, Herodotus, Persian Wars, Thucydides, Peloponnesian Wars, Xenophon, the war in Persia, the Anabasis, the last um, eight years of the Peloponnesian War, Polybius, Livy, Tacitus. It's always about war. That was what they considered, rightly or wrongly, to be worthy of historical inquiry. And the word history means inquiry in Greek. And so... And why has it failed? Why has it? Why aren't there not PhDs um, programs in it? Why are there not military history courses? I say why not because when you have a movie about war, whether it's a great movie like Saving Private Ryan that is a blockbuster, or maybe sort of a B movie. Remember the Brad Pitt tank movie Fury? That that movies was a big hit. And when you go into Barnes & Noble and you look at the history shelf, it's military history. So there's an, when I was teaching, if I offered a course in military history, I could out, I mean, I would get more enrollees than almost any course I taught in any other subject. So there was this natural public interest, but the academic world hated it as if 
you know, an oncologist goes into, as I point out so many times, an oncologist goes into cancer therapies because he loves cancer rather than to stop the problem. And so military history is a way of understanding why people go to war and how it ends. And it doesn't really exist. It started in the Vietnam War where people said all war was evil, even though war has saved a lot of lives. I mean, I don't know how you would have stopped Hitler without a war. Maybe somebody can clue me in that there was a peaceful solution to the Third Reich. But a lot of evil has been eliminated by war. But the Vietnam period told us opposite. And then there was the postmodern period where there are no facts and Western civilization was at fault. So it was all these white people were colonizing and, you know, imperialist and set, and that hurt it. And then the woke movement came that, you know, that, you know, Racist, racist, racist. It just drowned out everything. So the result was there was not a lot of military history, and it's a tragedy because it's very important. And what? And then the last part of the essay is, and what things would it, if we had some knowledge of it, what would be valuable? And I gave, you know, a couple examples. So Russia is going to invade on the 23rd of February. Everybody says, oh, oh, Ukraine is dead. They're done for. They're over with. And we saw them have this uh, Thunder Road uh, shock and awe effort to decapitate the government in Kiev, and it was an utter failure. And people might have said, well, wait a minute, when Russia leaves its borders, whether under the czar or under communism or under the Russian Federation, they're not very good. They don't go well into Japan in 1904 and five. They don't go well when they're invading Poland in 1921. Um, they don't do very well when they go into Finland in 1939. When they go into Russia, I mean, Poland earlier again in 39, they didn't do all that well. They had to be helped. However, and they didn't, of course, like us, they don't do well in Afghanistan. But you put you put an army on the border of Mother Russia if you're Charles XII of Sweden, you go in there, or you're Napoleon, and you go in there, and are you're Japan in 1939 on the Mongolian border, and you start to get close into Russia, then it's a whole different story. Suddenly, it's Mother Russia. So my point is, if you understood that phenomenon, you might suggest that Russia is going to have a lot of problems going in in an expeditionary fashion to take Ukraine. However, if Ukraine thinks that it's going to go in and destroy fuel and supply depots inside Russia or in territorial waters of the Black Sea that are Russian controlled and destroy ships, capital ships of the Black Sea fleet, and they're not going to mobilize the Russian people, I don't, I think that's naive. So we've got, to, my point is we've got to be very careful that we're, if Ukraine feels it has to be preemptory, and on the offensive, and that definition applies to going into Russia, then they're going to they're going to change the entire complexion of that war. Right. And if somebody's going to say to me, as they have, okay, Victor, well then you just believe it should be one sided. Putin gets to blow up and terrorize and stuff, and then they can't do tit for tat. They can do it. I'm just saying that Russia's advantages in population, GDP, and area will come into play because the morale will suddenly shift. 
and everybody that's in Russia will think they're they they are being attacked. Putin can't convince them about because they're on the offensive in a very morally compromised position. But you change right. the propaganda, so that that's an, an advantage. Another example, I'll just quit with that because I had a lot of them, is that we get captives of technology. So we think that technology changes everything. But human nature remains constant. So technology is just, as I keep using that metaphor, a pump. And I go back to what my grandfather told me once when I was out irrigating with him. And I was trying to understand how many valves per pump would be, would we be able to run, pumps water under the ground, puts it in a pipeline. And he was explaining to me the role of irrigation. And he said, it's very simple. And he, we had a hand pump he had. So when we got back in, he said, you know, you pump this. I got three gallons. You take a bucket and you take it to that tree over there. And I go flip on the switch. We get a thousand gallons a minute. And it's, we, we irrigate a hundred valves. But he asked me, he said, is the water changed? It's still water. The whole principle that, that plants need water is, it's timeless, but it's just the delivery system you have to catch up on. And that's what nuclear weapons have done. Everybody said, well, you know, there is no such thing as conventional war anymore because nuclear weapons. So we disarmed basically after World War II. And then people said, well, if you can't use them <laughs> and Russia can't use them, then how are they going to fight? Well, they're going to fight with conventional weaponry with surrogates in Korea and Vietnam. And then you're going to have to have tanks and bullets and nothing's really changed. And if you think that Iran is going to use nuclear weapons and it's going to change everything, maybe but there's going to be anti-nuclear weapons. Just like, you know, for thousands of years, there was stone walls and you couldn't penetrate fortifications in the ancient world. And all of a sudden, catapults did and then walls were thickened and then cannon were used and then they could knock down stone walls so then two stone walls were put 50 feet apart and dirt was placed in and the cannon couldn't do it so it's always in flux challenge response challenge response armor versus crossbows versus bullets versus kevlar that and that's the same thing with nuclear weapons it's unfortunately the moment of error the minute of a mistake is 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 compressed because you know you launch a nuclear weapon and if you can't shoot it down with a sophisticated laser it'll do more damage but the principle remains the same because human nature doesn't change victor despite the decline as you say in military history or the treatment of military history i'm i'm a young kid i know what i want to do i want to be a military historian <laughs> and i want to go to a college that is that is going to have a great professor that I can study under, which I think is a valid way of of approaching something. Like if a, you know, if it was thirty years ago and I wanted to be a classicist, I would say I want to go and study under Victor Davis Hanson. Um, if I, so, in in the twenty twenty three world of academia, if you were the the, the student so determined, uh, what's one or two? military historians or historians with ex, you know expertise in military history who are teaching today at um an undergraduate level or at a, at a graduate level who would who would um who would teach <laughs> teach well and train train a great military historian of tomorrow well there's places you know there's 
there's places like the Citadel or I think Marquette or U.S. Military Academy. Obviously, that's not open to everybody. But there's also the University of Kansas has not only an undergraduate, but it has a graduate program. Maybe the most famous is the Ohio State Ph.D. program that was run by, for years, Alan Millette and um, Jeffrey Parker. It's a very distinguished program. I had a student that graduated from there, very talented, Katie Becker. Okay. She wrote a, she wrote a, a Ph.D. thesis on the use of um, mass formations from the phalanx to the Spanish tercio, the Swiss uh, phalanx, all the way into the Napoleonic columns, stuff like that. They were very good. Um, uh, Mr. Waro in Texas has a program. I think that's at Texas Christian. I have to remember that, but it's a very good program. I've been on the PhD examination board on, in one okay. case. The Yale used to have a great program when uh, Charles Hill and Donald Kagan and people like that, uh, Je- um, Paul Kennedy were involved. It was grand strategy, but it had a lot of military components. I don't think it's got quite the luster that it had when those three were very active. Right. And there's a new program. We There's two programs, I think, that are very good. One is the new Hillsdale College. Um, it's under the auspices of Ed Rodriguez, very talented young historian. They've got some very they have an endowed professorship of military history. And I, when I go there, I've been there the last 21 years. I either teach courses on, you know, Greek and Roman mythology or history, but also world war two or war. And I worked a lot with Thomas Connor, Tom Connor. He's now retired, but he was a wonderful world war two historian. Right. He wrote a really good book on uh, the American battle monuments commission, which I was a member for right. almost a year. Uh, that oversees all the military cemeteries. Uh, it's, it's a very good book. It's a history of how that commission was formed and how they operate. And we have one at Hoover. It's called the Military History and Contemporary Conflict Project. Uh, and that was started, I started that in 2012 when our director was a wonderful man, John Racy, and just a saint, a really said nice to me, man. you know, right. you're a military history person, Victor, and you've been here 10 years, and we're, our motto is war, revolution, and peace. And war and revolution and peace have something to do with conflict. Right. But we don't have a military. We you know we have programs where officers would come. We have good security fellows every year. We take one member from each branch. But we don't have an academic component. So he and I um, raised a lot of money because it was going to be, he said to me, I want the top military historians in the United States and analysts. And I want them from all walks of life. I just don't want academics. But to do that, you have to pay people to come out to have a symposium and pay people to write for an online magazine, Strategica. We pay a dollar a word. That's pretty much, as you know, from your own publishing experience, that's more than... Pretty damn good. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I would give... John Mason list, and you know we had the late Angela Cotavia. We had uh, Ralph Peters, just a brilliant guy. He was at one time Bill O'Reilly's military correspondent commentator. He was, he was very good. 
We have Andrew Roberts. We have Andrew Roberts. We have Neil Ferguson, Jim Mattis, uh, Gary Ruffhead. These are chief of naval operations, head of the, you know, secretary of defense. We have H.R. McMaster, national security advisor. We have people, uh, Mark Moyer, the military historian. Um, we, we have Bing West, who wrote a lot. We have a lot of analysts inside the Pentagon. Uh, Joe, right. We have tried to get Europeans, Joe Joff. We had Walter Russell Mead for a while. And then we also, um, in addition to all of that, we try to encourage uh, discussion to the point of difference or disagreement, which is easy to do in the age of Trump. And we don't try mm-hmm. to censor anything. So they're pretty volatile conversations. Uh, especially on things like China and Ukraine and Russia. We have Gordon Chang on China, Miles Yu from the State Department, Na- U.S. Naval Academy, a lot of Chinese experts, uh, Barry Strauss, ancient classicist, Paul Ray, classicist. Um, we have about 40. Right. And what we do is we publish each three-week period an essay. This next one is going to be on uh, fishers and NATO. And did the Ukraine war make NATO more uh, cohesive or less so? And then we're going, and that's called the backgrounder, where we get a distinguished scholar to write about the historical, say, problems and advantages of NATO. And then we have a pro and con, sometimes on the same subject, sometimes not. But we're going to have one. Yes, it did make NATO. Uh, more unstable in the sense it contributed to the Turkish problem, Turkey selling weaponry to Russia and having joint arms ventures with Russia and now threatening to send missiles into Athens and the whole southern flank could be ripped wide open with a Turkish-Greek war. And if you listen to what Erdogan has been saying lately, you know, one night you're not going to know what's going to hit you. And the Dodecanese islands that were acquired or given back to Greece, they were Greek from since antiquity. Uh, he's now questioning the legitimacy of that sovereignty, you know, that maybe they should be Turkish. And you can't, we're going to overfly them with our jets, but you can't, you can't uh, arm those islands to protect themselves. That's against the treaty and stuff like that. So that's going to be one of the essays and the other will be on Germany. And that will be, did, did the war bring Germany back into the fold of NATO to a greater degree once it was disabused of its naivete about Russia, Russian energy supplies, and is it mm. rearming? Is it a better NATO? And so we, I assigned these topics, and then David Berkey, um, the managing editor, who works as a research fellow at Hoover, then he does the real work of contacting the particular scholars and, you know, kind of focusing these questions I, I posed, then they, then he and Bruce Thornton, another research th- are responsible for editing the essays. They appear. It's a lot of work. Right. I know it's a lot of work because when I first did it, I did it once, uh, did it all myself. Did it all? Yeah. I couldn't do it. So yeah. I know they're doing a lot of work and then they get, illustrations and they get it out and it's it's and then we once a year or sometimes twice we bring that whole consortia to Palo Alto or to Stanford and it's very expensive because we have to bring fly everybody in we have top accommodations and then we have this 
circular table and we we pose questions about um the contemporary political military situation i pose four questions and then everybody weighs in but to participate and to be paid they have to write a 300 word essay on four topics and then we bank those so during the next year i know what the issues will be mostly and then right. each issue we can draw back on those. So every strategic issue has backgrounder essay, pro, 750 this, 750 con, and then maybe five or six mini essays that were accumulated uh, during the conference. And so it's pretty wild. It's really wonderful to have people. We had the brilliant David Goldman, you know. You, you, oh, I love, yeah, I love David. Great. D- David's a polymath. Right. And, oh, Right. He's right about classical music, uh, Hebraic uh, law, uh, and China. Financial uh, yeah. whiz. Financial, yeah. He writes under the pseudonym Spingler right. for the Asia Times. But he came, you know, and he come, came out and would give a different view about China. And so yes. and Sammy and I talked about him when we were discussing China the other day. Yeah. And I think, you know, on Ukraine, somebody like that, or the late Angela Cotavia would have a very different view than Bing West or H.R. Uh, McMaster or, or Jim Mattis or, yeah. or somebody like that. And then we'd have, so we would get very spirited conversations and disagreements. And that was the whole point of it To, And then I try to bring in maybe 10 or 12 visitors, sometimes through Zoom and then sometimes fly them in that have expertise. So for this next one that's scheduled in March, it'll be on Ukraine. We, we're going to have people who actually are involved in weapons development. They know exactly what our arsenal is that we're giving Ukraine and what degree is it going to be effective or dangerous or irrelevant, <laughs> except for stuff like that. And so it's, 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 uh, we had a little bump as everybody did during the Trump years because, uh, it tended to be that Anybody with a, how do I say this without being self-incriminatory? Go ahead. Be self-incriminatory. <laughs> well, anybody that had a <laughs> reputation as weighing in on military history or diplomatic affairs, or just as a public intellectual or something, right. identified with Trump was suspect mm-hmm. that way. And so yeah. if that group of maybe 40 or 50, there were maybe eight or nine of us that voted for Trump and were unapologetic about it, given the alternatives. And that kind of created a little bit of tension, but not, I, I thought it, it, it was helpful that people were very polite and had different views. Right. Well, we so, get, yeah, we try to get Europeans. We have a lot of people that come in with a, a very strong Turkish, pro-Turkish or pro-Greek, pro-Israeli, you name that, pro-EU view. And so we're, the whole point is to get discussion and not to censor anybody's views. And right. The very funny thing was, is um, <laughs> I don't know how to put this, but when I got the original 25, I showed them to the director, John, and he said, uh, does anybody not like you in that group? Meaning, I don't know if he even remembers this now, because he's retired, but he didn't want you to get your old buddies, you know what I mean? And then I'm... And then, right. get, you know, how that works, right. that incestuous thing yeah. where you write a book and you, not that it's always bad, but it's yeah. suspect. And we are log rolling, a log rolling uh, daisy chain on the back cover blurbing. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's like 
well, Victor, are you bringing all your buddies out? And I said, no. And I said, here's 25. And this guy trashed me in a review. This guy <laughs> said something yeah. terrible about me. This person said in print that I was an idiot. This person can't stand my sight. So that was good. And yeah. I think a lot of those people probably still feel the same way, but they're, they've never been rude about it. I, I can't believe, Victor, that anyone exists who doesn't like you but that said we only got a few minutes left and we got to take a little break and we got one other i don't think it's important but i think it's important topic to discuss and that's i can't believe i'm saying this prince harry and we'll be back and get victor's views right after these important messages okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. By the way, our happy home on the internet is John Solomon's JustTheNews.com. That's JustTheNews.com. So check that uh, out. So, Victor, look, you know, I read the Daily uh, Daily Mail uh, throughout the day. And some days we have to remember it is a British publication. And when uh, little Harry here has his memoirs coming out you're going to go to the daily mail website and see 30 stories about this and he looked cross-eyed at his brother about this and he had uh frostbite on his wiener uh, here he killed 25 taliban i mean any everything from prurient to but what bothers me or what i'd like to hear from you on is this guy is uh the uh, if you look at recorded history the one percent of the one percent of the one percent very few people very few have had the privilege and the prestige and whatever you want to say uh that that this harry whatever the hell is last is it windsor it must be his last <laughs> harry windsor Meghan markle's husband has and yet and yet he is so freaking whiny and portrays himself as a victim constantly mega wealthy despite all his victimhood and i find him to be kind of a pinup boy for our times yeah i mean it's we always look to the british to be a little bit more sophisticated in the positive sense than we were they weren't as therapeutic in other words but he's an oprah like you know there's no it was no accident that oprah interviewed his wife because they had the same shared therapeutic mindset. And so the problem was, is that after 
making a ton of money and buying this Montecito mansion and then hawking their name, because if anybody can tell me what the expertise of Harry is, or a C-list actress like Meghan Markle, if anybody can tell me how otherwise they would have been so rich and so much in the news without this stamp, this brand from the royal family, I don't know. I don't think that would be possible. So here we are. They're creatures that were created by the royal family, right? He's part of the royal family. And he's like the second son, the third son, and the fourth son of the British aristocracy. He's angry because he's not going to be king. And he's going to be second fiddle by an accident of birth. And so he adds, you know, he says he's had this drug use and he was rebellious and his mother was, you know, tragically died. And I think he hints that she may have been murdered and conspiracy. He goes into seances. And so the person is not stable and he says things you should never say. You know what I mean about killing people. He says he kills 25 Taliban that he knows of. Okay, so that's very dangerous to say if you're in the royal family, because in the age of Islamic terrorism, somebody may be related to somebody who was killed and maybe thinks he was killed at a certain time or place by Harry, and it's not a good thing to say. You never say that. You know, my father flew 40 missions over... Um, Japan, and he was on the March 11th fire, 9th, 10th fire raid that, you know, incinerated 100,000 people. And he shot down three uh, Japanese fighters, I think two Raidens and one Tony. And he never mentioned it. He wouldn't talk about it. And he just didn't want to think about it. He didn't mean that he was escaping the responsibility, but he took no delight in it. He took a lot of delight in helping win the war for the United States and saving lives, but he didn't want to dwell on the people he killed. So it's it's a really kind of weird when you say that, 25 people he killed. And I think he was saying that almost to suggest that he had been in actual combat, whereas his father and his brother had been in the military, but not, you know, on the cutting edge, so to speak. So I'm getting what I'm getting at very slowly, Jack, is that he recites all of these um, grievances he has against his family. They're racist. They were nice, nice to Megan. And he had to play second fiddle to his brother. And his father was having an affair with Camilla, wise, you know, his mother, and all of these terrible things that have happened to him, but they're always at the expense of the royal family. So now, thanks to Harry... We've had public interviews, and he had the Netflix, um, remember that, the real TV docudrama, and now we I, have the I, memoir. I watched one episode, and I just, I, just for the hell of it, I'm like, I cannot believe people are so self-centered. Yeah, it? he's completely narcissistic and obsessed, and, and now he's got a memoir, and the only reason anybody's going to read it is not because they think Harry's interesting. They want to read gossip and dirt and you know, sensationalism about the late Queen Elizabeth or Ch King Charles or whatever. So he is a creature, is what I'm trying to say, of the royal family. And he has used that relationship to become very, very wealthy by exploiting it through media, documentaries, online interviews, memoirs, you name it. He's not done anything on his own since his military service 
that it makes him uniquely gifted. I mean, I like maybe she has as a actress, but not lately. So they have one job, and their job title says peripheral members of the royal family that will on any given day allow you to interview them, film them for criticism and attacks on the royal family. That's it. That's their job description, to trash the royal family. Well, after doing all this, what I don't get is then he laments that he can't reconcile with his father. He can't reconcile with his brother. He can't reconcile with his sister-in-law. He can't reconcile with anybody. Why would they do this to him? You know, it's a perennial brother you have or cousin or somebody who's told everybody in town you're an ogre and writes you that you're an ogre. And there are families like that. And then all of a sudden says, and you won't talk to me, <laughs> you know? And I don't get where he's coming from. He's yeah. done more damage to that royal family since Edward, you know, in the 1930s and Hope Simpson. And so, I don't know. He's very likely. His, I guess that would be his great-great-grandfather, great-great-uncle. Oh, great-great-uncle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's done just, he's, he's very similar. Yeah. Kind of a outspoken young guy, kind of handsome, but completely a wastrel. And, you know. Well, it's not, it's not a clear connect, but you know, I mentioned before that Sharon and I, that's Mrs. Fowler, were, were at that infamous Yale event about seven or eight years ago, a free speech conference. And when we, the police <laughs> let us out of the building from the, from the wanna rioting students who were screaming at us, I thought these are the most privileged people in, in history right here. There's students at Yale, and yet all they do is they're filled with hate and anger and and see themselves as victims. And this guy strikes me as exactly the same. I mean, he is a he he is a prototype uh, for um, for a young woke culture. Woe is me. I've never had it so good. It's crazy. but And you anyways. know that if they told him, if they told him, you can come back and we're going to make a special role that we've never done before for the second son of the king, and we're going to make you a roving diplomat with plenipotentiary power and anything, he would jump at it. You know? Yeah. It's like... <laughs> Joy Reid getting on MSNBC and going into her tirades about white people, then the commercial break, you know, she's going over there. What are my ratings? What are my ratings? And this is right. all these people, they act, they're all pampered and elite and careerist. He's a careerist. Put upon multi millionaires. So, so and, and I think everybody knows that their marriage is going to end badly because she's an egomaniac and a narcissist too. And she has been responsible for all this. And she's half black. She, if you saw her, you wouldn't necessarily be able to tell she was African-American. Not at all. Not at no. all. And yet <laughs> she's now carved out two niches. One, she's the American. And two, she's the, the person of color. And that makes her a victim. So you end up in the theater of the absurd, where, as I said earlier, she's in Montecito and She's in one mansion, and Oprah's in another mansion, and Oprah says, come over to my mansion. So she comes over to Oprah's mansion, and then the two of them start 
talking about all of the how oppressed they are. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to that. I think people realize we're in the 21st century. So mm-hmm. this there's a there's this other question that also dovetails into the whole psychodrama, and that is that the African American elite is also, whether you're LeBron James or Joey Reed or Ellie Mistel or any of these people, they don't understand that it's not 1965. And when you look at uh, upper middle class women with bachelor's degrees that are African-American, you look at their salaries, they're pretty comparable, if not more than their comparable white counterpart. If you look at the American suicide rate, White males, except for indigenous people, American Indians, have a much higher suicide rate than uh, Latinos or blacks. If you look at so-called white rage and white privilege, and you want to quantify that by using DOJ data, and you say, okay, Mark Milley's right, Professor Kennedy, let me go look and see all the hate crimes the whites are committing. Well, they're, they're underrepresented. There's 68% of the population, they commit about 56. African-Americans are about 12%. They commit about 25% of hate crimes. And that 12% com- commits about 53 to 55% of violent crime and murder. So what I'm getting at is you've got a very fluid situation where LeBron James and Oprah and Michelle Obama are not victims. So when Oprah says she's oppressed, because somebody doesn't show her an alligator, thirty-seven thousand crocodile, thirty-seven thousand dollar purse in Switzerland boutique, it's hard to stomach. Or Michelle says that when she goes into a store and a short white woman asks a very tall black woman to pick up a package for her and doesn't recognize her, that's a proof of how racist this country is. Or when Meghan Markle says that. Somebody in the staff said, we don't know what color her child will actually be. And therefore, it's very hard mm. to take because yeah. these are. Don't not- you like it though? When, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt. But when you're in a supermarket or someplace and someone says to you, All could, the you time. Help me, could you help me get this? Could, would I you mind? A, I just you know, came it's... back on a plane. I just came back on a plane and there was a short uh, woman of Asian descent. And she said to me, she turned around. I was sitting next to her and we landed and she said, could you get my package, uh, my suitcase and package? I said, I already did because I had got up and got mine and they're right here. And I pushed them right there. Yeah, it makes, I didn't, you know, I didn't it's a nice thing. Well. It makes you feel good. <laughs> you know, to help I, didn't, I didn't think she was just stereotyping me as a white person that was stupid that had to do that. Hey. So, yeah, that's that's uh, that's that's the problem when you have. When you postulate that there's a victimized population and you don't have enough victimizers, then you end up, you're into Jesse Smollett territory. You're either in Jesse Smollett territory or Duke Lacrosse or Covington Kids territory. Yeah. Or you're in Michelle Obama, Oprah, Crocodile Bag, Meghan Markle territory. In other words, you have to fabricate real racism. I mean, you have to say that this is real, this fantasy, which is a smaller MAGA people running around in the middle of a frigid morning with you know, bleach <laughs> and a rope, defying the laws of chemistry that right. bleach won't right. freeze as you throw it at you to right. bleach oh, you white. And then yeah. yelling out about Empire, some, a show that nobody ever watches, and in particular a, a MAGA person, I suppose, wouldn't. Or you're 
you're just trying to find things that you think may have existed. And so I guess what you're trying to find, what's the overall explanation, the analysis, the whole exegesis? And I think it is that once you you start to gravitate to a quality of result, or you say diversity for diversity's sake, or you you have something other than meritocratic criteria, then you're never going to can fully convince a person that they're not a victim or a beneficiary of some type right. of non-meritocratic, and that creates doubt. And Or that's the good take on it. The bad take is if a person believes that they have been, that their race is essential rather than incidental to who they are, and it's been very helpful or beneficial in their career trajectory, like Meghan Markle maybe, uh, then they're going to feel that the more that they emphasize that again and again and again, the more you can, you know, sort of get dividends. And that's what mine, that, that vein of ore. And that's right. what Michelle does constantly. And yeah. that's what uh, certain people do. That's why, when you see, that's why when you see someone like a Tom Soule or Shelby Steele, and they have the exact opposite or Clarence Thomas, their ideas. I'm going to be in the field of ideas in which I work. And I, my race is, I'm, I have some insight as a member of that race, but I'm going to try to show you how pernicious this is when people do this. And my views are based on my writing and my argumentation and you can accept it and, or, but I'm, I'm going to compete in that arena of ideas and they, they're superior. And so they, when you talk to them, they don't have any of this. They don't have any of this. Actually, like Shelby says something like, yeah, race uh, is like number 17 on my list of problems. Uh, it's just when not... I would talk with Shelby Steele for our luncheons, we talked about Israel. We talked about foreign policy. When I talked to Tom, we'd go to lunch, you know, every two weeks for 15 years. It was, hey, Victor, are you worried about battlefield readiness in the military? And Victor, uh, what's what's going to go on in Iraq? Or Victor, I'm really worried about this tax proposal. And do they have any idea what $20 trillion in debt means? And, and who are these crazy people talking about switchgrass and sugarcane making oil or gasoline when we have all this oil? Just stuff like that. It was never about race. Never. And then to the degree that even race came in, it was always, you know, comic. They would laugh at somebody who t tried to use all of their racial fides for advantage. But what I'm getting at right. in this long, and I'll finish, is that this is 2023. And... When you look at per capita incomes of various ethnic groups and you look at both positive and negative, neg positive and negative stereotyping, and that's what these people do. It's a boomerang, Jack. So once you say that I'm white or I'm black or I'm yellow or I'm brown and you want to identify with that as a collective and not as an individual, then you're going to take the downside too. You are. So if you say I'm black and I'm black and I'm black, and I this, 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 and somebody's going to say, well, then why don't you address the 70% illegitimacy? And they're going to say, no, you're stereotyping. Well, no, you're stereotyping because, you know, somebody like Joy Reid can't finish a sentence with talking about white people. Or, and so 
no one should ever do that. No, if you're white, you shouldn't say, well, white people, you know, white people gave us Thomas Edison and Alexander. Well, you know, we have the highest suicide rate, too. Right. You don't want to separate yourself as an individual and say, I'm no longer an individual. I'm part of a, a Borg, a collective. It's because it will boomerang on you. And mm-hmm. it has a bad historical precedent. It leads to Rwanda or Yugoslavia eventually or Iraq or some kind of multiracial, multireligious chaos and war of everybody against everybody. And that's where we're headed. But we are in a period in which a lot of brilliant people have said that when you start to approach equality, then people who had feel that they had been victims in the past do not do not want to downplay that because the racism is not there anymore. They're going to start right. to apply adjectives as needed. Systemic racism, mm-hmm. not aggression, but microaggression. And they're going to try to emphasize segregation like the Berkeley off-campus housing where science says no white people allow. Basically, they have a pamphlet. Can't walk into the, the housing. Right. They're of a well, particular color. So... That's where we are right now, and it, and it requires everybody to speak out against it because it's uh, where we're headed is that L.A. hot mic city council conversation where those three councilmen started to just their whole worldview was each particular race other than their own was subhuman almost, the way they said something, calling little monkey or bitch. And, and that's what we're headed for. Right. Those were all sterling members of the multiracial, multicultural, woke uh, political establishment in California. And yeah, they sort of flipped uh, flipped intersectionality on its head by mocking yeah. the gay the gay so guy were, with the with the black son, right? Yeah, <laughs> they called him a white bitch. They called they called the son monkey, and yeah. they called people from Oaxaca little ugly people, and they were wow. abject racist. And yeah. so, I think we're going to get to that point where everybody is sick of it. They're sick of it. They're sick of people who identify by their race and who it's essential to. And they're going to start holding people. So when this, what was her name? Representative Bass the other day said that Representative oh, from, Donald's. Yeah. And he I'm said sorry. That, she, that he was a token. Um, yeah. No, the, 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 yeah. The lady from Ferguson. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she said yeah. he was a token. uh tool of white privilege well then she's a racist people should say that they should say that she's a racist and they should hold people accountable so when a professor as one did recently not too long ago i think it was last year at rutgers said that she we want to kill all the white mother blanks then she should be held accountable just as if she was white saying that about black people or brown people and if somebody you know, like Ellie Mustel, who's a talking head on MSNBC, says, you know, I got kind of tired of white people. I don't want to see them anymore. I just keep away from them. Then he should be treated as well or not as, as somebody. Or if you're Sonny Huston and what the view. And she says, oh, I can't understand why these uh, suburban white women voted for Trump. It's kind of like cockroaches going to raid using that nice Hitlerian imagery about a gas and and person being reduced to an insect. Right. So people are going to have to hold her. They're going to have to say they're, they're going to have to say, look, we're in a multiracial society and we're headed toward Armageddon. 
and Yugoslavia unless you stop it. So if you're not going to stop it, and you're not going to stop calling people racist and posing as a victim, then we're going to intervene and we're going to call you out on it. And we're going to be completely transparent, completely transparent. And I don't think people want to do that because you look at what's happening in Chicago, and I think people need to say to Joy Reid, if you're going to talk in collective terms, not as individuals, but as black. Are you going to say that white people, remember she said after the shooting, Kyle, what was his name, Rittenhouse? She said, well, white right. people turn, white people, especially white males, they just turn on those tears. She was gloating, right. you know. And if you're going to talk like that, then, and you're going to divide the world, or you're Mark Milley and you're going to talk about that, then you're going to, it's going to boomerang you. People are going to say, okay, Joy, you tell me right now why the African-American community is committing hate crimes against the innocent that double their numbers in the population. Explain it to me. Or why the illegitimate rate is 70% or what goes on in Chicago is more deaths than was going in the worst year in Afghanistan per year. You explain that. Of course, she doesn't have to because she's an individual. She's not responsible for all that as an individual. But once she makes herself responsible for it by claiming that we're all just little cogs in these racial gears, then she is responsible. And she's right. going to have to account for that if she wants to take on that role. But you can't have it both ways. You yeah. can't have it both ways. And you can't be LeBron James and be in the NBA that's somewhere between 65 and 70 percent African-American when that's 12% of the demographic, and then start lecturing people about disproportionate impact and racism and all this in a larger society. You know, maybe somebody's America, gonna say, you know. Somebody's going to say, okay, where's the Latino center? And he's going to say, well, it's a meritocratic situation. And mm -hmm. the Latino community is going to say, no, it's not. It's diversity. Diversity is our strength. So we want 12%, 15% of the NBA, and then the Asians right. are going to say, and the whites are going to say, we want our members too. And LeBron is going to say, what's well, going to hurt the meritocratic? Because we were like that one day when it was mostly white. And it was a very unexciting game compared to today's game, which is based entirely on merit. And then somebody's going to say, LeBron, okay. Yes. So you're saying that merit should not be the qualification in... United Airlines pr training program and admission to Harvard Medical School, because those are irrelevant, but merit must be essential for really important things that make the United States work, like the NBA. <laughs> Is that it? So you can't have it both ways. You see what I mean? And that was, uh, Victor, that's, what, uh, that's what's happening. Yeah, we, the, the you know, the rabble rousers and, and the, the elites who want to, foment this kind of stuff flies in the face of and i know we have to end this show we're way over but you know this poor um um you know buffalo bill uh defender who got hurt that seriously hurt the other day uh damar hamlin uh and a nation comes together a white a predominantly white nation comes together to pray desperately for this hurt black man and immediately finds ways to show some support by 
like millions of dollars flooding into his charity. It's just some tangible way that we can show some support for this guy. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. And it's probably America still is at its core, but not not, not in the mind of Joy Reid and not in the mind of. Yeah, uh, well, we're, we're a multiracial society right now. And we're an integrated, assimilated, intermarried society where we don't we'll need a DNA badge to to give the racial background of every member in our family. Right. And right. if these people on the left think that for the next 30 years, you're going to be able to give special preferences based on two criteria, your superficial appearance and the historical grievances of your particular community, and you've got about 30 of those communities, and they're all going to fight it out, and you're going to tell what? The blonde-eyed, blue-eyed, third-generation Argentine immigrant named Jose Diaz. It's basically Italian or German that was in Argentina, and he's going to come here with no no prior record of of uh, discrimination. And you're going to tell him that he's uh, eligible right. for affirmative action, but not somebody who's a Punjabi scientist, uh, you know, computer major, or a poor white kid. From Tulare, California, that's never had anybody going go to his, in his family to college, and you're going to tell him, wait, you can't go to Stanford. It's 23 percent only white, and for white males, it's 48 uh, percent of that 23. So it's about 11 percent. We got a lot of legacies, 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 legacies. So you're not. You may have a perfect SAT score, but we reject 70 percent of the perfect. And you may have a straight A average. You may be the first in your family, but you are not going there because of your gender and race, even though that 12% is one third of your demographic in the general population. But we are going to admit an African American orthodontist with a much lower test score kid from an orthodontist. And that's not going to be tenable. Right. It really isn't. Just like the whole Jim Crow finding fell because it was a bankrupt, amoral system. And we're, this is the 55th year. I mean, we're in the sixth decade of the civil rights movement. And somebody's going to finally somebody's going to say the emperor's naked. And the civil rights law says you can't discriminate on the basis of race. Right. Well, somebody should inform the human resources departments of American corporations about that. Wow. Now, Victor, we, we've we've got to close shop here by, and we thank our listeners. But did you know, Victor, what classics classic stein wrote as a comment on um, apple Podcasts. would you like to hear that i think you would it's, yes, it's titled oh good it came with five stars and thanks to those who go to apple Podcasts and itunes who can leave five stars they can leave zero stars but practically everyone leaves five stars we're very appreciative of that uh classic stein wrote this it's titled historical interpretation bdh articulates Current news with the inspiration of history's failures and successes as he approaches an event, uh, there is a lighted path towards truth and knowledge with reflection instead of rehearsed verbiage. Progress is planted on informed content instead of a biased path slanted with greedy deception. Thank you, Victor. Not for your movie choices. So <laughs> that was from your podcast the other day with Sammy. Uh, otherwise, an 11 out of 10. Thank you, uh, Classic Stein, for the kind uh, uh, reflection and to all others who 
do the same and leave comments. We read them and we appreciate them. Even I appreciate the criticism. Shut up, Fowler. Criticism. Take it to heart. So, Victor, thank you for, so much for sharing your wisdom uh, today. And we will be back soon with another episode of The Victor Davis Hansen Show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Much appreciated. Much appreciated.